Kelsey, if I were making an authors that I'd love to chat with list, our guest today would definitely be at the top of that list. In fact, I kind of still can't believe our luck. It is our great pleasure to have the opportunity to talk with Rebecca Mackay on this episode of The First 50 Pages. Rebecca Mackay has a fantastic sense of humor. I learned this while reading her bio on her website, so I will not just copy and paste the basics. I'll spice it up a little bit. She is the author of the short story collection Music for Wartime and some pretty incredible novels, The Borrower, The Hundred Year House, and one of my all-time favorites, The Great Believers. Close to our hearts, her work has been featured on Public Radio International's Selected Shorts and This American Life. Rebecca Mackay calls Chicago home and is the Artistic Director of Story Studio Chicago. Welcome to the first 50 pages, Rebecca. Thank you. So many of our listeners will know you as the author of The Great Believers, a novel set in 1980 Chicago during the height of the AIDS epidemic that Michael Cunningham called in a New York Times book review, a page turner, an absorbing and emotionally riveting story about what it's like to live during times of crisis. And if you're listening and haven't read The Great Believers, obviously go out and get it. It's so, so, so good. (laughs) Uh, You have a great talk that you did for the Library of Congress National Book Festival in 2019 about The Great Believers, and I would highly suggest our listeners watch this for more on this book. It's such a thoughtful, wise, and funny discussion. So The Great Believers was categorized as literary fiction, and your latest novel, I Have Some Questions For You, also has this tag. But it's so much more than that. It's also a murder mystery and is one of those beautiful novels that doesn't really fit neatly into any one genre. There's so much to talk about with this book, but would you mind introducing your latest novel to our listeners? No, I can do that. Yeah, I've been calling it a literary feminist boarding school murder mystery. <laughs> I love that. Is true. Um, yeah, the basic, you know, the the one minute plot is um, our protagonist is Bodie Kane. She's 40 years old and she's uh, invited back in to teach for two weeks in the dead of winter at the boarding school in New Hampshire that she herself had attended as a really kind of adrift scholarship kid in the 90s. And she's back there to teach one class on film history and one class on podcasting. Um, She herself is a film historian who has a podcast about women in film. Um, While she's back on campus, her mind is of course back on the 90s, but specifically on the death her senior year of a young woman named Thalia Keith, who was found dead in the campus swimming pool with significant injuries to her body. Um, A young black man who worked at the school as an athletic trainer um, has been, was arrested and and imprisoned for the crime with what seemed like a mountain of evidence against him, including a confession. Um, But there are a lot of people uh, out there who believe he's innocent. One of Bodhi's podcast students is among them. And that's what she decides to dig into on her own uh, just little two episode podcast that she's making for the class. And Bodhi gets drawn back into thinking about that time. And no huge spoiler starts to believe that perhaps there's some truth to uh, the claims that Omar, the guy in prison, is innocent, or at least that there are other people who should have been investigated. And we go from there. As a reader who attended high school and college in the 1990s, I feel like this novel just hits so many notes for me. And the beauty is really in the simplest details. 
Like, I have lived through not being able to watch Beverly Hills 90210 because we only had three channels in my house. Yes. And most of the casual photos from my high school and college years are overexposed with terrible lighting. Um, but <laughs> these are the more benign of the universal experiences that women our age will understand. But this is not a novel of nostalgia. It feels more like a reckoning with the past. Right. Can we talk about how this story began to take shape for you? I'm, I'm curious yeah. as to what the fir- was the first part that you wrote where you decided that this was going to be your next book. You know, it's, it's interesting the way you asked that. Um, I'm not someone who writes my way into a new book. I'm actually someone who thinks about a book for about two or three years before I type anything. Sure. So, um, you know, the, it's interesting. The first thing that I actually sat down and wrote, though, um, was actually what is now part two of the book. And it's only the last quarter, really, of the book. Yeah. Um, I had this idea that, um, you know, we we hear about cases where people need to, you know, reconvene for various legal proceedings way down the road, witnesses in a court case. Um and very often those people still live in the area where the crime happened. Um, but I'd been you know, thinking for a long time about the possibility of a boarding school novel and that started to come together um, with this idea of a novel about looking back um, on, you know, on something like this. Um, and I had the question of, you know, what would happen if the people who needed to reconvene for whatever, uh, for whatever legal proceeding, what if this happened um, somewhere really remote where they'd all been, for instance, in boarding school, but none of them ever lived there and certainly didn't now. And what if they were all trapped then in the same hotel together when they came back? And that was the premise that I started with. Um, but I realized then that I needed to back way up and tell you a lot more of what happened, not just in the 90s, but what got us to that point where a case would be reexamined. And so I thought that I would write just kind of like a prologue set a few years earlier and the prologue turned into three quarters of the of the book. Yeah. So you explore issues of race, sex and class in this book as well as bullying, harassment, sexual predation, cancel culture, the proliferation of podcasts, our obsession with true crime and white women victims, systemic racism. But the thing that's really kept me thinking about this book is the idea of how we evolve, uh, the importance of our memories and the sum of our experiences making us who we are, and the impact of time on our own individual stories. Is there a question that you kept going back to while you were writing this book? Uh, there were many questions I kept going back to. Um, you know, you just you just mentioned uh, time last, so I'll say that's that's certainly one of them, the question of memory um, and how that works um, and how, you know, not only how our memories um, certainly might be unreliable, you know, we, we form them, uh, you know, in the immediate aftermath of what happened, but it doesn't mean that they're accurate. But then those memories change over time. Um, and also the way that just the memories that we do hold on to can absolutely change their meaning as we look back. Um, and that was that was kind of the, you know, at the core of a lot of things here for me. My feelings as a reader did get muddied up in this novel, most certainly by design. And I think that's a lot of what makes the story so compelling. 
throughout the book as Bodhi recalls moments for from her past, I was also struck by memories that I thought I had long since left behind. And in reading this novel, I could palpably feel the way that women of different generations react and respond to situations that arise in the story. And I was also keenly aware of my own reactions to different things. Um, and it just, you know, made me think about, you know, the power of great writing and novels to take you into those places. Um, can you share your thoughts on what a novel has the power to do that nonfiction can't? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, very specifically in this case, um, there are questions of, you know, there, there are questions of kind of looking back and reckoning, but there's also a literal Me Too uh, plot line going on where um, someone is uh, kind of casting allegations against Bodhi's ex-husband. Um, and Bodhi, while she believes everything this woman is saying online, doesn't feel like what her ex-husband did crossed a line. Um, and those are, I'll say specifically, you know, those are the kinds of conversations that we really, we don't do well having those on Twitter, for instance, yeah. which is where they mostly tend to happen. Um, and, you know, it's it's an, um, a platform that really encourages us to take a hard line one side or another, and that feeds off of, you know, the algorithm uh, likes us to be outraged. Um, so uh, that is not the format for it, for sure. Nonfiction has a lot to explore there, definitely, you know, an in-depth um, journalistic account of something is very, very important, but fiction can really muddy the waters and allow for contradiction, I think, in a way that uh, nonfiction, you know, might be might be a little harder for nonfiction to do, and can certainly leave uh, the takeaways and the reactions up to the readers um, in in a pretty specific way. Um, so that, that's not the only issue, but I think it's a it's a notable one here in terms of like, you know, I this is something where that, that Me Too question and those questions of like, well, did this story really is this really the same as the others? Um, those are conversations that we are often too scared to have online. You know, someone's, uh, you don't want to be the person stepping in on Twitter and going, actually, I don't think it's that bad. Yeah. <laughs> no one, no one in their right mind is going to do that. Um, but sometimes you have those conversations offline. Sometimes you just think about them and it just, you know, going, well, gosh, there's, there's a lot of complexity here. Um, and so that's what I'm digging into hopefully with the, with the novel. The yeah. fiction does always kind of seem like it's a safer space to kind of explore some of that as a reader where, you know, right. nonfiction, even like with a big like journalistic, you know, they've researched it for like five or 10 years, like they're still giving their specific perspective or their specific yes. analysis on something where fiction allows you to kind of experience it and come to your own conclusion in a way. Right, like, exactly. Yeah. That could just be my yeah. feelings. But. I think it's just always the role of art is to ask, it's not to give answers, but it's to ask better questions. And Kelsey and I were having this conversation um, a few minutes ago uh, about the book, and we couldn't really come up with a question, right? But our Ooh. observation was that the internet is almost its own character in this book, mm -hmm. right? Like it is a, it is a chorus of, you know, that it kind of comes into play, um, 
you know, specifically, you know, in that that Me Too moment that, you know, Bodhi kind of gets swept up into, um, you know, when you're basically sharing the Twitter feed and it's this chorus of, of voices. And um, yeah, so is it the collective consciousness of the time or... You know, it's the, just realism, really. Yeah, yeah, it it's is. Not, it's not in there to like represent anything. It's yeah. just, it's, um, you know, I think this is where, um, you know, while there is a crime in this novel, and while you know by the end we basically know who did it, it's not going to get shelled with mysteries, um, because it's about you know many, many, many things, and I have this you know, kind of realist lens on all of those, including the crime and the investigation and incarceration and the justice system. Um, it's not, you know, just focused in on the main plot because that realist lens means we're taking in everything that's going on in this person's life. Yeah. And realistically, the, you know, online stuff is part of that. Um, I... You know, and I just, I kind of want, you know, I want to see through that lens of realism what what I can let into the novel and then what all those different things have to say to each other. Is that the little dateline moments or episodes that, you know, you bring up in the book of, you know, the one where and kind of that mm -hmm. collective memory, I thought, you know, there's little moments, but it's just so impactful as you're reading the rest of the story and kind of how mm. that those little nuggets inform the rest of what's going on. Right. Um, that was something that I, um, there's, you know, this thread throughout the book with this kind of just deluge of true crime cases. And what's, mm -hmm. what's, so a lot of them are real. Um, a lot of them I completely made up actually. Mm -hmm. And, but the, the idea is just that sense of like, there are so many of them and you can't even keep them straight and that this story, which although of course it is fiction, the pretense there is like, you know, let's say, let's pretend that this is one of them that you had already heard about, that you know about already. Um, and then let's look at it, um, you know, without that fetishization, let's look at it through this realist lens and actually talk about what that means. Um, the, the sort of contradictory so, so there's 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 this thread where you know I'm doing a lot of different things with these lists, but one of the main things is it's a sort of um, contradictory accounts of what story is in the news, and Bodhi refusing to tell us, and she's saying it was this one, but actually it was this one, but actually it was this one, um, and that really came about from me just not being able to, like I, I wanted there to be something in the news that was really throwing her off. Um, but I didn't want to pick a certain thing, um, like, you know, the Christine Blasey Ford testimony, um, which did have, by the way, you know, a lot of influence on me when I was writing this novel. Um, but if I'd chosen that, I wouldn't have been able to give it its due. And if I'd made something up, I would have had to, like, make up all these details that distracted you from the main story. Um, so my solution was just like, you know what, it's all of them. Let's just yeah. say that it's all yeah. of them. And that's going to happen throughout the book. And it, it really is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And it is really impactful on the reader. Because part of you is trying to think, do you know? And then part of you is thinking, but I don't need to, you know, I don't want to know, I don't need right. to know. Mm -hmm. But the, because there are so many. So yeah, right. it, um, 
It was a, a really great um, device. Yeah. Well, thank you. We often talk about how reading helps to build empathy, but you've made the point in previous interviews that empathy isn't enough. And you ask the question, what are we doing once we build that empathy? Do you have any thoughts that you'd like to share on that? Um, Well, you know, when I was talking about empathy not being enough, what I really meant actually was that you have to do your research. Um, Because I was talking about writing across difference specifically and writing the great believers and you know any novel is going to include characters who are different from you demographically um and and you know spiritually emotionally um so uh in this one too you know i needed to do research into like the new hampshire state prison for men and um what it's like to be incarcerated all of those things um so that that's what i meant when I was saying that um I do think you know as a reader um the empathy and the research are essentially tied together because you you know as a writer you have the empathy part but you have to actually do the legwork to find out the rest and when the writer's done their job then as the reader you're getting both together you're getting information on what it would be like if you know from over here a, a different kind of life and you are getting that empathy, both the authors and your own. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, 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 it yeah does. totally. So in The Great Believers, art served an important role in the story, almost a character in and of itself. And and I have some questions for you. There are many references to films, both classic and modern. What do you mm-hmm. see as the role or function of the films you mention in this book? Oh, I mean, there, there's nothing symbolic there or anything. It's just... Um, you know, I, I needed to think about what Bodhi's occupation would be. Um, and I, um, the reason that this worked for me for her to, to, you know, she's someone who her work in film history is really to think about the history of women in early 20th century film and specifically their abuses by the Hollywood studio system. That's at least her podcast. And then she's, you know, taught intro film history and things like that. Um, it's not something that I myself actually know a ton about. I had to do a lot of research for this. Um, and I did not choose the movies that I put into the book with any kind of symbolic function. It's simply just literally what she would be showing in intro film history class. Um, so uh, uh, anyone looking for like greater meaning there is is not particularly going to find it. Um, I, I will think about the... F- I, I've never seen the movie Bus Stop with Mary, mm. but I will think about that differently now if I ever do see it. I, I'm yeah. sure I, it will be playing in the back of my head. Yeah. Well, that one's different because yeah. that's one that she watches herself, right? She okay. sees it come on in the hotel room. And it's one that I've seen and was incredibly disturbed by. Like, what are you guys doing here? Um, Marilyn Monroe movie where she's like, just kind of falls in love with her abusive kidnapper. No big deal. Like, um really really horrifying um so that one is in there for very for different different reasons (laughs) your debut novel the borrower it was released in 2011 it was a bookless top 10 debut an indie next pick an o magazine selection and one of chicago magazine's choices for best fiction of 2011 um so 
without getting too deep into the plot of that story, I guess my question is, do you share your protagonist, Lucy Hall's faith in the power of books to change people's lives? Hmm. Sure, of course. Um, You know, it's interesting. I think I ended up putting a much more optimistic ending on that book. Um, It was certainly... The original ending of The Borrower was a lot bleaker. And um, I, you know, I think with good reason, my editor kind of pushed me into like, well, where's the hope here? Where's the optimism? And that's where I felt like I could find it within that book. Um, So, yeah, I do. I mean, I don't think it's all like, it's not all Pollyanna, like books can make everyone happy, but it's, it's like, you know, the, the books that are being banned right now in Florida and elsewhere in Those Iowa, the there's a lot of, would be, yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I said in Iowa, there's a lot of effort right now to yeah. create lists and yeah. do those mm-hmm. things too. So yeah. And those books that are being banned, those are the books that would be the very lifeline for the people who need them the most. Um, and, you know, it's uh, when you look at what losing those books means. It, it helps to throw into greater relief what having those books does. Is there a book that you can point to that connected you to the world in a way that other stories hadn't? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, this, I, I grew up, um, Lois Lowry was my favorite author as a kid, and I loved the Anastasia books. Um and it's just, you know, this, like, they're kind of funny. It's, it's just this girl growing up, very realist books. Um, her father's a poet, and my father was a poet. And I did not know anyone else in the world whose father was a poet. And it seemed like such a, you know, completely obscure thing and something that I didn't, you know, have any corollary to. And then finding someone in a book who had, you know, this, I mean, just like she had like a marvelous family. It was much more interesting than mine, of course, <laughs> to me. Um, but it was it was this real sense of recognition. Um, and that's, that's you know, so much of what we read for is just to be recognized. Have libraries, I have to imagine they have, considering the way that you do reference and write about them, but have they had a significant impact in your life? Of course, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, as you know, in recent years, it's been much more like places to have book events and they're wonderful, yeah, yeah. but no, yeah, as a kid, that was, um, not only the place where I went to find most of my, almost all of my books, but, um, my pub- little public library had a writing contest every year for, and, and I, a couple different times won the writing contest for my grade. And that was like the first actual, you know, real validation I got for my writing. I I don't, I can't say confidently that I'd be a writer without that. Thinking about, you know, the success of The Great Believers, how readers just really do connect with the story. um, Mm -hmm. And they, you know, it it continues to be a story I think that people find, um, Mm -hmm. you know, at least in our library system, Mm -hmm. it regularly it still checks out it's not one that's gathering dust on the shelves you know Mm -hmm. um does this story and these characters still live in your mind or at some point do you have to let them go oh i mean no they still live in my mind and it's partly that i'll do an event and you know people in the signing line want to you know 
this the great believers was very close to their own experience and they want to talk to me about it and it feels like I'm just always doing more research yeah. um, and then also you know it has been optioned for tv you know who knows you believe it when you're eating the popcorn but, <laughs> um, but you know we're, we're continuing to talk about these characters and think about these characters so um, they're very alive to me just as as people as well well, we really appreciate you joining us today on the first 50 pages, and thank you for creating such powerful stories that make readers want to talk and share and invite others into the conversation. And then for our listeners, I have some questions for you. Is available in bookstores and libraries everywhere now. So go grab a copy, get it checked out. You can also follow Rebecca Mackay on Twitter, Facebook, and Substack. <laughs>